been hearing a good report from the teens. Of course, last week uh, they were down in Atlanta on a missions trip, and uh, the Lord really seemed to work in the hearts of those that were down there. And uh, I'm hearing reports that God is continuing to work in hearts, both in the teens and uh, the leaders as well. And so that's, that's wonderful to hear, and we praise the Lord for that. Um, so continue praying for them. Hosea chapter 10, Hosea chapter number 10, and we're going to begin reading in verse number 9, Hosea chapter 10, uh, verse number 9. He says, O Israel, thou hast sinned from the days of Gibeah. There they stood. The battle in Gibeah against the children of iniquity did not overtake them. It is in my desire that I should chastise them, and the people shall be gathered against them when they shall bind themselves in their two furrows. And Ephraim is an heifer that is taught and loved to tread out the corn, but I passed over upon her fair neck. I will make Ephraim to ride, Judah shall plow, and Jacob shall break his clods. Sow to yourselves in righteousness, reap in mercy, break up your fallow ground, for it is time to seek the Lord." Till he come and rain righteousness upon you. You have plowed wickedness. You have reaped iniquity. Because thou didst trust in thy way. In the multitude of thy mighty men. Therefore shall a tumult arise among thy people. And all thy fortresses shall be spoiled. As Shalman spoiled Beth Arbel. In the day of battle. The mother was dashed in pieces upon her children. So shall Bethel do unto you. Because of your great wickedness. In a morning shall the king of Israel utterly be cut off. Now, we're continuing here in chapter 10 on this idea of a slippery slope. And um, this slippery slope started when Israel turned away from God. Uh, They chose that they decided that they didn't need God, uh, that they were going to do what they wanted to do. Uh, And even last week, we were looking at a few verses here um, about... Uh, who, who is your king in verses 5 up through verse number 8? Um, and their king really wa- was the idols that they were serving. Uh, that's who their king was. That's who were they were giving themselves to. They were giving their time to the, to the idols. They were giving their uh, money to the idols. Everything was about their idolatrous worship, right? Yes, there was a physical king, but the real king in their life were, were the idols that they worshipped. And we talked a little bit about that last week, how we can say that Jesus is the king of our life, but really the true king of our life is who we serve the most. Uh, the real king of our life is the one that we give ourselves and our time and our everything the most to. Uh, and to Israel, it was the idols. Now, again, it may not be an actual physical idol uh, like these calves that they had back then, but in our life today, we can, we can have things that uh, we can say, I'm a Christian. We can say Jesus is the King of Kings uh, and he's the Lord of Lords, but um, is he really our King? Because if we are serving other things more than him, then really those things are, the, are really what is King in our life. But in verse number nine, and really kind of to the end of the chapter here, there's really an interesting theme uh, that I think I, we see throughout this chapter. It's, it's really something we could say we see quite often <laughs> uh, with Israel, unfortunately. But again, sometimes we can, we can be pretty hard on Israel. We can be pretty hard on people in the Bible. We can be pretty hard on the disciples and be like, why didn't they just believe? Why did they just do what they were supposed to do, right? 
Um, but let's face it, we're, we're not as perfect as we like to think we are. Um, and we make just as many mistakes as, as they make, maybe even more. But the theme that we kind of see from verse number 9 throughout the end of the chapter is really kind of summed up in one word, and that is the word obstinate. Obstinate. How many know what the word obstinate means? A few of you. All right. Good. The word obstinate, right? And uh, the word obstinate really is another word for the word stubborn. But it's, it's a little bit harsher term than stubborn, right? Uh, you can say someone is being stubborn, but um, obstinate really has the idea of someone just, it's, they're stubbornly, stubbornly refusing to change one's opinion or chosen course of action despite attempts to persuade one to do so, right? So, I mean, even though someone has been trying to say, hey, that's not right, don't do that, you shouldn't do that, that's not right, they are not going to change, right? They're just obstinate. Uh, Another word that we find in uh, the scripture that speaks about that idea of being stubborn is the term stiff-necked. Ever heard of that term before? Stiff-necked, they're just going to dig in and we're not going to... We're not going to move, right? That's, that's, our, that's our theme song. It's a, it's a one that we, it's a hymn, right? I shall not be moved. Now, that's unfortunate. Sometimes that's what our, that's many times what our a Christian theme song is. I'm not going to be moved and God, you can't even move me either. This is where I am. This is where I'm going to stay. Don't ask me to move. Don't ask me to do anything. That's being obstinate, right? That's, that's being stubborn, even, especially when God says to do it, and we like, no, I'm not going to do it. That's, that's being obstinate, right? And that's, that's the theme that we see throughout the rest of the chapter here. Notice in verse number 9, he says, O Israel, thou hast sinned from the days of Gibeah. There they stood. The battle in Gibeah against the children of iniquity did not overtake them. So again, think about it. He speaks again of the sin of Gibeah. And this sin is where we can, we can go back in the book of Judges and you can read about this. But it was a sin that was so horrific. It was so horrible that the 11 tribes of Israel almost wiped out another tribe because of it. Uh, it was done in Gibeah. Gibeah was, um, was of the tribe of the Benjamites. So Benjamin, right? And so this... This thing that happens in Gibeah is so horrible that the other 11 tribes come against Gibeah. They come against the Benjamites and basically they wipe out almost the entire tribe of Benjamin. There's only uh, of, I I remember right, there was about um, 24 or 25,000 men of the tribe of Benjamin uh, and again, this is, you know, this is right after uh, you have Joshua and they've come into the promised land. They've taken over different areas. And this is during the time of the judges. Uh, and so they come in and uh, they, they, of those 24,000 uh, soldiers of Benjamin, only 600 were left. After Israel comes and destroys them because of this horrific thing that they had done. But just like Israel, here in our passage, when the Gibeonites or the Benjamites from Gibeah, when they were confronted with their sin, there was no remorse. There was an obstinance. There was a stubbornness. When 
the rest of Israel, the 11 tribes come and they say, hey, what you guys did was wrong. And this need, we're going to, we're going to judge the people that did this. They said, no, 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 it wasn't wrong. We're going to stand by these people. They were obstinate so much to the point that 24,000 Benjamites lost their lives. Almost the entire tribe was, would have been wiped out if they wouldn't have stopped and said, hey, wait a second, <laughs> we're about to wipe out an entire tribe of Israel. We've got, we've got to pull back here. And there were only 600 men that were left. Now, again, if you think, obviously, from the tribe of Benjamin comes who? The first king of Israel, right? Saul, right? What would have happened if they would have wiped out the entire tribe of Benjamin? There would have been no King Saul, Right? Um, anybody else we know from the tribe of Benjamin? He was, he was kind of famous. Uh, the apostle Paul, right? Both the King Saul and the apostle Paul or Saul, both were from the tribe of Benjamin, right? I mean, there would have been no King Saul. There would have been no apostle Paul if the tribe of Benjamin would have been wiped out, right? But they were so obstinate about this sin. They said, we would rather fight our own people. We would rather fight our own brothers and sisters. We'd rather fight them than to acknowledge our sin and to acknowledge what we had done. And when they were confronted, there was no remorse. They were just stubborn. And he's saying in the same way, before they were completely annihilated, they left some alive to continue the tribe of Benjamin. So watch what he says. Again, he says this, O Israel, thou hast sinned from the days of Gibeah. There they stood. And that idea of there they stood, meaning they were obstinate. They were, they were stubborn in what they were doing. They were not going to repent of what they had done, right? But then he says, the battle in Gibeah against the children of iniquity did not overtake them. Now, many of them lost their lives, but the entire tribe was not annihilated, Right? So think about this. What's God saying? Judgment is coming to Israel. But Israel's not going to be completely annihilated. There is going to be a lot of destruction. There's going to be a lot of death. But the entire nation of Israel is not going to be annihilated. There is going to be a remnant, right? And watch what he says in verse number 10. It is in my desire that I should chastise them. And the people shall be gathered against them when they shall bind themselves in their two furrows. So again, God is expressing his desire or his, his if you want to say his righteousness or his holiness in judging them, right? Again, it almost make, it, it is in my desire that I should chastise them. Did this, did it please God? Did it make God happy that he had to chastise them? No, of course not, Right? But in his righteousness and in his holiness, there had to be chastisement. Why? Because God could not continue just overlooking their sin. There had to be chastisement. And so in God's holiness and God's righteousness, there had to be this discipline. Being a holy God, he could not just allow them to continue in their sin. And God had warned them of this when he brought them into the land. He said, if you will follow me... I'll bless you. If you follow me, I'll fight for you. But if you do not, then he said, I'll bring judgment upon you. I'll bring judgment if you don't follow me, if you don't do what I say. And think about this. No parent enjoys disciplining their children. No parent enjoys that. 
But if they do not obey, and if they do not do what is right, it is necessary for discipline that they learn what is right. You see, as a parent, if a parent never disciplines their child, then a child never learns what is right. If a parent never disciplines their child, then a child thinks anything that they do is without consequence. And that's why even God in his holiness and in his righteousness says, look, even though, yes, these are my, my chosen people, I cannot just overlook their sin. Yes, I love them, but I cannot just pass by it. There must be a consequence. There must be judgment because they need to learn what is right and what is wrong. Yes, you can say, well, I'll just, I'll just tell them what is right and what is wrong. Yeah, good luck with that. Yeah. If you've had kids, you know that does not work, right? Because you can tell them that it's wrong, and guess what they do? They do it anyway. Well, I told them it was wrong. So? <laughs> they don't care, right? They don't care. The only thing that really will get their attention is if they recognize and realize, hey, if I do this, if I do something wrong, there is a consequence. And this is what God is saying in his holiness and in his righteousness. It is in my desire that I should chastise them and watch. And the people shall be gathered against them when they shall bind themselves in their two furrows. The Assyrians would come against them. They would take them into captivity. And notice what he says here. He says they shall... The people, referring to the Assyrians, shall be gathered against them, and they shall bind themselves in their two furrows. They would take them into captivity, and they would put them to work. Like oxen plowing the fields. Now remember, if you remember what's going on in Israel at this time, Israel is at its if we would say it's zenith of, of power and prosperity and man, I mean, everybody's just enjoying life. So nobody wants to work, right? Nobody wants to do any type of physical labor. I mean, everybody's just enjoying life. But he says, when the Assyrians come, when this people are going to come against you, they are going to put you to work. They're going to put you like oxen in the field, plowing the furrows. It's not going to be pleasant the two furrows, it's interesting that he uses this term, the two furrows. The two furrows could be a reference to the, the two calves that were made by Jeroboam. It speaks of these two furrows. This, it's almost like a, a double, the work is going to be doubled. Could it be because of the two calves that were made? Or could it be because of the, the two sins that Israel committed. Hold your place here and look in the book of Jeremiah chapter 2. Jeremiah chapter 2. Jeremiah chapter 2. Notice what he says in verse number 13. He says, for my people have committed two evils, two evils, two sins. What are these two evils? They have forsaken me, the fountain of living water, and hewed them out cisterns, broken cisterns that can hold no water. He says there are two evils that Israel has done. There are, there are two sins 
that Israel has committed. They have forsaken God and they have made false gods and worshiped them. Those were the two evils. Those were the two things that God said, this is, this is where that judgment is coming from. You have forsaken me, and he uses the, he uses the idea of uh, water satisfying, right? He says here, the, the fountain of living water. So here is, I mean, think about it. Here's this fountain that is just, man, there's a spring that is bubbling, and it's just this fountain of water. It's fresh, it's cool, it's, it's satisfying. There, there's plenty of it. And you turn away from that, And you go over here to these broken cisterns that have no water in them. They're broken. There's no water. There's nothing to satisfy. There's nothing to, 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 there's no cooling. There's no satisfaction in it. But he said, that's what they have done. They have forsaken the God who is like that fountain of living water for these idols, these idolatrous things that are like broken cisterns without any water. Now, again, if we would just think about it in in your right mind, and again, remember, we're dealing with the Middle East here, right? It's pretty hot. Water is very important. It's very valuable. Uh, It's very important for for life, for for your livelihood, for your your crops, for your your stock and all of that. So water is valuable. So to have a, a fountain of living water, a fountain that never runs dry, a fountain that is always there, you would be an absolute fool, to turn your back on that and go to this cistern or this well or whatever it might be that is broken and has no water in it. That'd be foolish to do. But yet he said that's exactly what Israel did. They've turned their back on God who satisfies, God who delivered them, God who provided for them. To these idols that did nothing for them. And again, hold on. Before we'd be like, man, those people really were foolish. Man, how, how could they do something so foolish as that? Let's step back. How many times have we done that? When God has been the one that has provided and God has been the one that has saved and blessed. And we like, God, I don't, I don't need you anymore. I've got my own broken cisterns over here. Yeah, they're not going to provide anything. They're not going to satisfy. And so he talks about these two sins in forsaking the true God and choosing these idle man-made gods. And then he says in verse number 11, back in Hosea, he says, And Ephraim is an heifer that is taught and loved to tread out the corn. But I passed over upon her fair neck. I will make Ephraim to ride. Judah shall plow and Jacob shall break his clods. So Israel is compared to a young heifer. Everybody know what a heifer is? (laughs) Right? A cow, right? All right. So Israel is compared to a young heifer. He says an, an heifer that is taught and loved to tread out the corn. Israel is compared to a a heifer, a cow, that is accustomed to and enjoys treading out the grain, right? And if you know anything about, um, you know, Eastern culture and Middle Eastern culture and things like this, you know that they would either have some type of uh, of a round... 